the only thing worse than a root canal is looking for a job on the internet. Hello everybody, this is Anthony Moore with Career Daily. I am here to put the human back in human resources. Let me be your competitive advantage on the job market. It is dog eat dog out there. Our research companies, new industries, I'll dig around, I'll figure out who some of the hiring leaders are, and I'll post all this information on our exclusive Facebook networking group. You'll also hear amazing interviews from professionals that I'm interviewing all across the country. Some are inspiring. Some are very informative. Some duds. I'll leave the duds out. Stay tuned for today's episode. Well, today I am joined by a supply chain expert. He graduated from Columbia University. Looks like he uh, on the varsity crew. I'm looking forward to hearing a little bit about that as well. Also was the regional transportation manager for the Atlanta Committee of the Olympic Games here in Atlanta back in 1996 and had a very successful career at Freshens Fresh Food Studio for more than 20 years. Really looking forward to this conversation today with Vince Michaels. Welcome in. Thank you, Tony. Thrilled to be here. Yeah, so a, a book that really inspired me, and I have shared this book to so many people, Boys in the Boat, uh, with Joe Rance, uh, the story of the 1918 um, Summer Olympics of crew, uh, and I see you are also in, in, in crew. How did you get into that? Started in high school, believe it or not. I grew up in Philadelphia, which has a large rowing community, both at the high school as well as college, and then club sport teams as well. And the tradition is over 100 years old on the Schuylkill River. Don't ask me to spell it, but I can say it. Schuylkill. <laughs> well, before there was the NFL and the NBA and these you know mega sports, people don't realize, but rowing or crew was the sport for the world. I mean, it was everything. And uh, by the way, do you, I don't know if, if you have you actually looked at the book. Have you seen the book? Uh, no, Boys I haven't. I just wrote it down. I'm going to have to. Oh my gosh! My so yes, we're going to have to. Uh, yeah, you're going to have to to take a look at that, and then we'll have a, a recap on that because it is one of the most inspirational stories of a of a young man. I'm not giving anything away. This is history. This is from 1918, but it's. Uh, the, about the Berlin Games and about this little crew team from Washington State that overcame all the odds and made it to the Olympics and they win gold medal. And it's, I get goosebumps just thinking about Joe Rance and everything that they, they went through and the pain, the agony, the misery, uh, which you experienced if you were in the boat rowing. Yes, it's not a indoor sport <laughs> for starters. And obviously, growing up in Philadelphia, you have your fair share of winter weather, as I did in New York. So you are training during most of your school year. You literally show up day one of school, and your season typically isn't over till Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, you're going to have to check this out because it's, um, it's definitely incredible. Okay, well, listen, I think the Olympics uh, are very interesting. Uh, as we know, the uh, Tokyo uh, 2020 games have just been pushed now to, to 2021. 
So before we get into the the business aspect of, of supply chain, I'd kind of love just to hear a little bit about your experience with the uh, Atlanta Olympic Games. How did you even find that job in the first place, this um, you know regional transportation manager? How did that come about? Well, I was initially slated to be a volunteer at the Games and so was in dialogue with them. And basically one thing led to another. And it's funny, the title, Regional Transportation Manager, connotes transportation, right? So, and which was one of my skill sets from my previous life. And interestingly enough, I was handling the park and ride lots out at Stone Mountain, as well as all the venue spectator flows going in and out of those venues. And then the park and ride lots with the Northeast Corridor going into town. So it was really spectator transportation, not freight, which is what I was used to moving in the past. Yeah, well, we've got plenty of parking down at that uh, at that site. So I remember those games vividly. They were it was just incredible to have that in the city. Would you? Is there any advice for someone who wants to get involved with the Olympics? I mean, really, the next one that we have in the states is Los Angeles in twenty twenty eight. My experience was that the typical person working at the events are either the recent college graduates or the second career retirees. So there was a retired police officer who for years was responsible for the perimeter of Super Bowl games. In other words, controlling what traffic came inside, what traffic didn't. He would do that whole layout. So he was one of the interesting people that I met at the games. Obviously, if it's a foreign country, uh, or even if here in the U.S., language skills, if you can speak a foreign language, that gives you a leg up. My daughter was actually supposed to be a volunteer at the Tokyo games because of her English and her Japanese So that skill set was obviously very attractive to the host committee there in Tokyo. That's interesting because part of my business, the the side of my business that I actually make money in (laughs) uh, at Join a Search, we're actually, I'm part of the, the largest Korean staffing company in the U.S. My division inside of that is our executive search practice. And it's not just for Korean clients, it's for American clients. That's really why I'm there is to build that out. But we do obviously work with a lot of Koreans. So that's actually a great tip. Um, And particularly in LA, I mean, LA has a huge Korean population. So that's a great, great tip. If you want to get part, if you want to be part of that, you know, use that, uh, that additional language. So I, I mean, I think, uh, you know, volunteering and this type of work is a good way to do some networking, right? Uh, you, you know, you meet other professionals, you meet other people. And I think you and I actually met at a networking event here in Atlanta, C3G. Have you found that these types of groups have been helpful for you in, in terms of your career and making new connections? Absolutely. And uh, it, the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. it it's not rocket science. And so, what do you mean by that? Well, you know, a lot of times, particularly people in transition, you're, you're still in shell shock initially. And so you go in, needless to say, with that mentality, I need to find a job. What, you know, what do I need to do to get me a job? And 
what you quickly learn is it, you know, you have invariably something to offer somebody else, even if it's just a kind word, because they're going through that same heartbreak. And so the friendships that I've developed over the last year and a half have been just absolutely fascinating. It's just yesterday, a bunch of us helped someone who we had previously rearranged the furniture in her house after she had knee replacement surgery. Now we rearranged it back because she's moving her mother back into the house from assisted living. And she knows all she has to do is send out an email and she'll have 15 people show up. Yeah, I think there is a principle at work there when you set yourself aside and do something good for someone else. I think you really do open yourself up to receive other blessings. If you're always just focused on yourself, it's a, it can be a little narcissistic. And Yes, the, the difference between the open hand and the closed hand. That's a better way to put it. You know, I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to get into this at the front of this, but it's just kind of started this way. But I've noticed that you've done quite a bit of volunteering work, uh, particularly this uh, Family Promise um, out in Gwinnett County. Can you tell us a little bit about what Family Promise is? Glad to. A neat organization. They are totally focused on helping families who need housing. And what's unique about them is instead of operating a shelter, they utilize unused space in churches. Now, it's a very transient setup. In other words, a, a family or a group of families will literally spend a week or two at the most at a church's facility and then transfer to another church. So there's a little bit of uncertainty and a little bit of disruption there. And, and these people have certainly been through enough of that. But it is a roof over their head. And it typically is a lot more personal because the people of the church are the one bringing the meals in. There is definitely hospitality time with the families unless they want to withdraw and need some quiet time. My children who have been doing this since their probably early teens, I guess, have loved playing with the kids and other families at these events. And that was one of the bigger attractions to me because it was truly a family affair that I could bring my children with. I had previously done a lot of work with Habitat for Humanity and actually became a board member of the Gwinnett County Affiliate. And Habitat, because of the nature of the work, has a minimum age of 16 on the work sites. So getting my children involved when they were younger was not doable, but this with Family Promise was. And so it's been a, a great experience for our entire family. So are these people, are they affiliated with that church or just church members just know people in the community and see people going through hard times. They need a roof over their head. They just need a safety net. Family Promise is a national entity with local affiliates, just like Habitat for Humanity. And the Gwinnett County affiliate, which is who we work with, is the one that is coordinating which week which church is going to be host them. They also operate a what they call a day center which has computers to help either with homework or 
With job search, there's a laundromat there for them to do laundry. And so there's there's definitely some structure behind this. It's it's not an ad hoc hit or miss, you know, who wants to do it this week. The the schedule's normally done six months in advance. Well, so for those people who want to learn more about Family Promise and perhaps get their church involved with Family Promise or just like you've done with your family, just get involved, I'm going to put a link to Family Promise in our Facebook group so you can, you know, connect with the national chapter to figure out, you know, where you can get involved at your local level. I think I think volunteerism is is very important. We're seeing a lot more need for that today, obviously, because more and more people are losing their jobs and people who were really kind of hand to mouth who are able to survive because of their income, but just barely they lose that income for a few months and now suddenly they're their backs are up against the wall now. Very true. And and even before the recent downturn, there, there's always been people that were in jeopardy. You know, if, if for no reason other, I'm sorry, if no other reason, then they didn't have health insurance. You know, one medical bill can That's set true. them back. You know, things like that. And so, you know, we have a lot of, what I call what what has been referred to as the working poor, you know, people that are making that seven ten dollar an hour wage, which sounds good to maybe a recent high school graduate or something, but once you have a family and are trying to support a family on that, even if they're both parents are working, it that's impossible. Matter. Correct. It's in that's just it's just impossible to do that. Well. That's. I'm really glad you brought light to that and to that issue. So if you're out there and you're thinking you want to get involved, this is uh, another great option. And I'll put a link to that in the Facebook group. Well, why don't we go ahead and start transitioning into your expertise, which is um, supply chain, but particularly around food. Um, tell us a little bit about Freshens. I mean, for those of us who are in Atlanta, we we know kind of the size and the scope. I mean, this is a you know, a very large organization, I think like 450 locations, 30 airports, you know, college campuses all over the U.S. But for those of us who don't know much about Freshens, what else can you tell us? Well, Freshens was one of the original yogurt companies in the original yogurt craze of the 80s. The first time the country went crazy over yogurt or soft serve, as some people like to call it. And Atlanta-based company, and it's a company that has reinvented itself several times since then. And so during the 90s, when yogurt was fading, the company did the first of its pivots. It went from a traditional franchise model in a mall location to college campuses becoming its biggest sales channel. And smoothies became its biggest product offering. Fast forward to, I'll just say 2008, just because it's a date that resonates with people, but not for the reasons that I'm going to discuss here. The smoothie wave had run its course. And so the company did another pivot and became more of a center of the plate offering. So instead of simply being snacks and treats, it became meals, salads, crepes, burritos, flatbreads, sandwiches, a whole gamut of options. And that 
was a fascinating journey with a lot of sourcing initiatives, a lot of R&D work. Anything that ends up on a menu in a restaurant goes through umpteen iterations before they're finally satisfied that this is going to work on the menu. And at times, it does feel like you're banging your head against the wall. But ultimately, keep going and eventually get the success you're looking for. Not all new items succeed, whether it's the grocery channel or the restaurant channel. In fact, you typically fail more than you succeed. Yeah, it's a brutal business, uh, the food business. And particularly now with social media, if it's if someone has a bad experience or they don't <laughs> like something, boom, it just blows up on their <laughs> You know, immediately blows up. It can. Uh, and again, it's a numbers game. You you need to have enough people saying, yeah, I love the place. You know, I, my experience was wonderful. I was treated well. Well, when I, you know, just kind of a quick perusal of the website. I don't want to say this was uh, like a, a mission-driven business, but it definitely touches on sustainability and, you know, environmental and having, you know, biodegradable cups and straws and just, uh, you know, this ecosystem that people have come to expect out of uh, a retailer or, a, you know, a, a food franchise. So what level of what extra levels of complexity are added in when not only are you dealing with food and menus and R&D, and now you've got to create this sustainability model or this mission-driven type of business principle? It's awesome. I mean, you're always having these conversations and you hear no a lot when you're talking to vendors. When you ask them- What do you mean? No, like they can't provide that or correct. it's difficult to- mm -hmm. Correct. You're, you're definitely doing leading edge sourcing. I mean, I introduced compostable packaging back in 2007. And not to throw anybody under the bus, but like Duncan just changed their cups out of styrofoam this past year. I'm just using that as an example. Yeah, it's it's actually kind of shocking now when you see you know a, some styrofoam, right? Because it's like the it's the absolute worst. It, 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 and it keeps your products hot and cold. I get correct. it. Correct. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and unfortunately, it was a victim of its own success. I mean, and it's not just the cups. I mean, every time you have a flat screen come into the house or any other piece of electronic equipment. Look how much foam packaging you're trashing because you don't have a recycling option with it. That's a source of frustration. But yes, within the last two years, well, let me phrase that. Prior to COVID, there was a increasing awareness of this single-use plastics, whether it's foam, plastic, or any other petroleum-based product it still is an issue. How can we get away from this? I am just shocked. Every time I buy a product now, I look at all the one-time use plastic that is absolutely not necessary on the product. What are your thoughts on this? Can Shouldn't there be some kind of an initiative just to do away with it? There are. I mean, people are trying to address this. Oh, we've all seen the, the trash floating in the, the Pacific Ocean. Now, granted, truth be known, most of that's not coming from the U.S. That's true. But we know at the end of the day what our recycling bin looks like and what our trash looks like. And so – I don't know about you, but my recycling <laughs> bin is full like three days into the week. And I look at my trash bin and it's uh, it's empty. 
Yeah, I mean, but there are certain things, to your point, that you can't recycle and that you are putting into the trash. Like I mentioned earlier, the packaging on your electronics, you know, that foam, you don't have a recycling option. And so there are a lot of initiatives underway, both here in the U.S. as well as over in Europe. And so don't be surprised if you see the evil straw being replaced by what is basically a sippy lid on a cup. Now that's one accomplishment, okay? <laughs> sippy lid. <laughs> Best way to put it, okay? Which, which you basically have on coffee cups now, but you don't really think of that on the cold side most of the time. So it's not right. a big leap. But again, to, to your point, well, you've good innovation though. It, it is. It's, it's, it's progress. But now what about the cup? Okay. You still have this, this cup and now this lid. And so part of the solution, and this is going to be major and, it, and it's going to, it's going to hit us where we hate it. And that is convenience, but reusable, bring your own container scenarios. Well, you can, people have those straws now. I know my daughter's into that. She bought a a straw and it has a little clip that fits onto her key ring and she, you know, wherever she goes, she's just got this little straw. Yes. But and then it gets gross. If you're like yes. a teenager who doesn't <laughs> clean anything out. Yes. I personally wouldn't <laughs> use it. It's like, Oh my God, have you ever washed it? Well, I invested in the straw brushes for that very purpose. Yeah. So here we go. There's a business idea. So, I mean, are there some business ideas that can come out of this? What do you think? Yes. There's a whole initiative uh, and a good uh, starting point would be closed loop partners. If what does that mean? The closed loop par partners is a initiative of the major players, Coke, McDonald's, Starbucks, et cetera, who are working to address these issues. And it's gone beyond simply the packaging from your local restaurant and gotten into issues like clothing, which with fast fashion is another trash stream that needs to be addressed. And so we're not there yet. We got a long way to go. We didn't get here overnight and we're not going to get out of this hole overnight either. But there is a lot of work being done to address it. You know, it's a it's a different industry altogether, but I used to do quite a bit of recruiting for the battery industry. Uh, this was the sealed lead acid battery or the, the car battery that fits in un, under the hood. When you said closed loop partner, that's what came to my mind was a solution like that where the company that made the product was responsible for the recycling of the product as well. That's very accurate, and but they want to take it a step further. They want to have a true circular economy where things aren't really made to be thrown out. So whether it is the reuse, you know, reduce, recycle, let's get out of this petrochemical-based product development into a landfill scenario and do a better job of designing products that can be reused. And then at the end of their natural life cycle, take care of it in a responsible way. And that should cut down on the carbon footprint because 
the, the use of petrochemicals is so great in so many products. And then, of course, all the equipment that's needed to ship the one-time use products are, you know, shipped by truck, which is, you know, a, creating a huge footprint. So, yeah, I do think it has some, some benefits. So uh, you do think there's some business opportunities uh, within this space? Yes, the, the the world is constantly running into dead ends by avoiding it, okay? Two years ago, China, who had been the world's largest importer of recycled materials or, or the materials to recycle, basically shut down the door and said, no more imports. And the U.S. is still responding to that, getting ramped up. So a year and a half ago, you know, when you were putting your recycling bin out at the curb, there's a good chance it went to a landfill. You know, I've heard that. Yeah. I've heard that. We, we take it, uh, they take in more products than actually they can do anything with. Well, this, this kind of make, it kind of makes the consumer feel good. Like, oh, I'm recycling, but the reality is it's still getting trashed. Now that's not the normal MO. This, this was clearly a disruption in the flow of recycled products. And you're, so, you're saying because there, there wasn't that end source in China that was taking it. Correct. Once they shut that door down, you couldn't just uh, flip a switch and say, well, geez, we'll just ship it to someplace here in the States. They can handle this. No, there had to be a, a revamping of the infrastructure here in the U.S. It's, it's gotten better. It, it's not where it was when it first happened, but it, it's still improving and we still have the trash that we still generate that we don't put in the recycling bin. I think this is an, an area I'd like to look into more. I, I think there's so many people who are interested in, you know, being part of that movement. And I, I, me for one, I just don't know what these companies are, the names of the companies. If I, if I can identify a few companies, then I can go into my research tools and find more companies and then just, discover, hey, here's an industry that that is actually an option for people. But right now, it to me, it's a little bit uh, closed. I, I'm not very familiar with it. Correct, because typically this falls into the B2B space. So when I mentioned, you know, McDonald's, Starbucks, Coke, et cetera, they're involved because they're the face of this to the customer, the consumers who are throwing out these bottles and cans if they can't recycle them. But, um, yeah, we, we, we definitely have some old habits that we as a society need to break and, uh, not to rub salt in the wound, but how many times now have you seen a used face mask laying on the ground outside of a supermarket? Oh, believe me, the irony has not been lost on me. Everyone who was complaining about straws and everything. Now they're throwing away plastic gloves. Yeah, and and within the food world, with with home delivery, curbside pickup, etc., the packaging has just been amplified. You know, you got to make it tamper evident. You have to make sure you're addressing all the temperature concerns, etc. So, sustainability has definitely taken a backseat. Well, you bring up a good point, though, just about packaging. That might be the place to look to to start. That search, uh, like here in Atlanta, we have graphic packaging. We have print pack. 
you know, these kind of companies. So that's a place to start. Well, that might be the best kind of jumping off spot to get into the complexity of supply chain planning, um, all the moving parts. So I, I'd like to just learn a little bit more about, you know, how do you build an infrastructure for such a large organization as you did with, you know, hundreds of locations? How do you even go about doing that? Kind of, you know, walk us through that process. Glad to. Well, let's start at the store level. Okay, so you hit it right on the head when you mentioned the truck. This, at the store level, a truck is going to come in there with everything they need to operate. And that truck is coming from what is referred to as a food service distributor. And so these companies are the ones that are dealing with all of the vendors. Everything from the Nabisco's, the Heinz, the Crafts, you know, on and on and on, the Pepsi, the Coke, Frito-Lay, etc. All of those entities, that's the funnel through which the local store gets its product. Got it. So this uh, food service distributor has got the relationship with all those entities. All the food comes into those uh, staging locations, and then it's shipped to the customers. Correct. Now, those entities, just like everyone else in the world of supply chain, have been competing for drivers. That's been a critical shortage for over 20 years now, and and. Up until it's the CDL that holds them back, right? The commercial driver's license? It's not so much the CDL. You can, you know, companies will pay to get the CDL, et cetera. You can, you know, go drive a school bus for a couple months and get a CDL, uh, you know. But my point is, no, it's not the CDL. It's the, okay. it is the, uh, first of all, it's the lifestyle. You know, it's hours of service. That, that's been a big heartburn. And, and, and it makes sense from a safety standpoint that society wants to regulate the number of hours of a day that a driver spends behind the wheel. No one's arguing that. Like no mad. one wants an 18-wheeler going out of control on the expressway because the guy has fallen asleep. Correct. Where, where this gets a little bit murky is counting the number of hours that the driver wasn't driving but was waiting while they unloaded the truck. And that is something you could debate all day long. You know, the, the driver technically was working. The driver was technically on the clock, as people would say. How much of that should count in their hours of service? So how does that count now? Is there a percentage that they factor in? So a guy is sitting at the dock for two hours. Do they just take 20%, 40% of that time and add it to the drive time? It, it's more like the two hours. It's, it's, it's gone from zero to two basically over time. So, there, there so basically some, all of the sitting time, waiting time is considered drive time. It, part of their hours of service, yeah. And so that is a big friction within the world of supply chain. You have shippers and consignees. So at the dock, you know, how quickly can you get a driver in and out? And, and some warehouses aren't the most driver-friendly in that regards. Can, can you explain cross-docking? It does, does that play a part in this? It, it can. It, it's, it's not the best uh, – in the food service world, it's not the best scenario. But an LTL truck company is basically – What does that stand for, LTL? Uh, less than truckload. 
Okay, so small shipments. If somebody's shipping a pallet from here, from Atlanta to California, they don't put it on a truck. They would have a trucking company who specializes in this. And, and just like the, the post It's office, like a fractional. Uh, bingo. This, yeah, this, yeah, exactly. Fractional. Thank you. I mean, so used to calling it LTL for ever since I wouldn't even well, think. Well, I know it. LTL, but there's people that don't know that that term. And so uh, there are trucking companies out there who just basically collect the freight, and then within their internal system, they would get it out there. Now, depending on their volumes, they may or may not put it on a truck here in Georgia and send it directly to California. It may need to make a couple of hops and get cross-docked onto another truck before it eventually gets out there in California. Think flying Southwest Airlines. That might be a good example. Yeah, the the bare bones. <laughs> so that's one of the issues then, right, in creating this infrastructure is the uh, – the, I guess, no pun intended, the supply and demand problem of, of drivers. Oh, it's been huge. No doubt about it. And, and, and particularly in this segment, because you're not simply asking the driver to drive, you're asking the driver to do a very manual unload, hand truck into a facility, case by case. It's not even a forklift pulling off pallets off a truck. This is very hands-on. Within the truck, you're going to have a frozen temperature zone. You're going to have a refrigerated temperature zone, and then you'll have an ambient temperature zone. And you got to make sure you put the dividers back up as you come in and out of each of these zones because you can't lose temperature inside the truck. And so, yeah, very, very hands-on. So a driver who's looking for the best situation this offers the benefit of generally getting home on a daily basis. There are some overnight routes, but by and large, you're home on a daily basis. The trade-off is it's very physical. So, but I'm thinking though with multiple locations, with all the different food products, the the amount of waste that you're trying to uh, eliminate must just be enormous. Can you talk through that, that situation, the food waste? Certainly. At the store level, obviously, it's a constant battle that, that directly impacts their bottom line. And so they are very aggressive in controlling that. And I, I don't have a number to throw in front of you, but generally speaking, it's not a big number of, of waste there. Upstream at the distributor you get into issues of damage, which makes the product unsellable. Uh, the shelf life issues would rear its head at the distributor level. And then just obsolete inventory for whatever reason. And so for the distributors, all of them to a T are wired into the food bank community. Um, well, I guess what I'm trying to get at is if you were starting a business up from scratch and you were trying to put together this supply chain, this infrastructure, I'm just trying to understand, like, what's the hardware? What's the software? What's the knowledge? How do you, you know, put together something, you know, this complex? And obviously you've done this. So I was just trying to get a handle on the different uh, tools that, 
you know, people can use to, to manage such a complex operation. Well, I'm going to use, since we're both in Atlanta, I'm going to use Chick-fil-A as an example. Okay. Everyone they loves start. Chick-fil-A. So that's a Everyone. great example. There you go. And so they started out with a store, the original Dwarf House down there in Hapeville. And they have been very disciplined in their growth. And so basically, little by little, have expanded out of Atlanta, out of Georgia, out of the South. Now, they are not in all 50 states. Last I looked, they're in Southern California. They're not in Northern California. Uh, They've just in recent years gotten up into the New York City area. I do not think they're in New England. They will get there but they're very measured in their approach. Yeah, this is what I wanted to hear because I know that's got to be a huge challenge to add another store. Like how do you even begin to expand because there's so much else that goes into it. So that's a good topic. It takes discipline. It's very tempting, particularly if you, now this wouldn't apply to Chick-fil-A per se, but in a franchise business model, If you're an Atlanta-based company and somebody from Chicago calls you and is just dying to open up a store and you don't have distribution in that area, that's a tough conversation. So as you said, so so they did start with one store in in Hapeville. So what's that process? So they, they build the system out. They learn everything that they need to make that one store operational? Correct. You at a, at a basic level, you have to be a good operator at the store level. I mean, if you're going to open up a second store, if customers didn't like their experience in your first store, they're not going to go to your second store. So at that human level, that touch point, you need to be delivering a value proposition that resonates with your local community, whether it's food or any other business for that matter. For people like me, when the company wants to grow into other markets, I need to have a track record with these distributors and the manufacturers that we deliver the volume we say we're going to deliver in that marketplace because I may be asking a distributor to go outside of their normal market area to service some new stores while we incubate that area for another distributor to take over, depending on the size of the chain. And, and if you have, it's one thing if you're just using off the shelf items and a broadliner distributor already carries them. But to use the Chick-fil-A example, where every item going in that store has Chick-fil-A's name on the box and it's a hard spec as to what it is, you can't ask a distributor to bring all that inventory in for one account. It just doesn't happen. I see. So that's how you kind of leverage that existing relationship to expand outside of their normal radius. Correct. It's it's done, you know, very judiciously. Needless to say, the distributor that you're asking to go the extra miles, they're incurring cost. And needless to say, you're doing this in goodwill that this is by definition temporary. Now, temporary may be a year or two, maybe even longer but that it will end. It's not meant to be a permanent situation. And both of the distributors in this situation could be the same company, just different locations within the same company. 
So basically, once you can kind of establish that that new location is showing volume, then you can go to the, the other distributor and show this is the track record. Here's the first store, the second store, and this is what our third store is doing. So, you know, we'd like you to start supplying us here. Correct. Now, for each company, it's a different number. It, it may be three stores. It may be 10 stores, you know, depending on you know, the actual pull of the product. An intermediate step, and I'm going to go back to your previous question about cross-docking. In some scenarios, instead of the first distributor making the delivery to the outlying store, a cross-docking relationship might be established between two distributor locations that already have some sort of relationship that way. So the order would leave the first distributor go to the second distributor as a complete order, stretched wrap, ready to go. And then the second distributor would actually deliver it. Well, how do you make this decision on whether you insource or outsource something as complex as delivering food down to your operator level or to the store? Very few companies do it in-house. And this all goes back to McDonald's and what have you, Okay. It's always been done by third companies, third-party companies. The the few companies a three PL, no, not a not a not a three PL per se in the strictest sense. These food service distributors. I see. Okay. Now there are some exceptions. Uh, Duncan, from the jump, has been doing their own distribution, and so it's an in-house operation. Domino's, who I spent what I like to refer to as the craziest year of my single life, has their own in-house distribution system. Chick-fil-A, interestingly enough, has been using food service distributors, but just in this past year opened up a facility in Cartersville, Georgia, and is breaking ground in Louisville for a second location. So they are taking the steps towards self-distribution. Now, why would a company decide to do that? Obviously money, but what, what other drivers do you think might lead to that conclusion? It, it's a tough decision to make because distribution is not an easy business. And if you are a chain, and I'll just use Chick-fil-A for example, you're in the Chick-fil-A business, you're not in the distribution business. So if you do decide to self-distribute, that part of your business is always going to be competing for budget dollars year in, year out. What drives that decision ultimately is service levels. If you feel that you're not getting the service you need from the food service community and you need to bring it in-house. Yeah, that would just seem like a very expensive proposition, as you say, just literally building out your own, well, your own in-house food service distribution network. I mean, just the the capital expenditure where that was just, uh, you know, a monthly cost for delivery. Now you're quadrupling that with your, you know, having to build it. Correct. It boils down to the, the rent versus own scenario. And at the end of the day, you're going to have to have the discipline that these distributors have when you decide to open up new stores. You're, you're now going to be faced with that issue of whether or not, gee, do I really need a store in Oshkosh, Wisconsin? 
Well, and then beyond that, just think about the cost of employees. I mean, right now, if you're working with a food distributor, you just simply are, you know, working from a contract, whatever that is for delivery or product. But now you're talking about uh, paying employees and benefits and, wow, I just think the cost for that would just go through the roof. It is. It's not for the faint of heart. And to make it work, you have to have the volume because at the end of the day, it's a numbers system. What enables that food service distributor to make it work is because in addition to the Chick-fil-A business, they're handling this business, that business, and some other business. And so, yes, it makes sense to have a warehouse crew. It makes sense to have a fleet of trucks. It makes sense to have an administrative staff. And it makes sense to invest in technology. Chick-fil-A is making that, you know, it's definitely a crossing the Rubicon type moment. Uh, Food costs are going up as it is. And now with with all that additional cost they're adding into their system, how how is that going to drive food costs down? I, I only see it going up. I hope I'm I wrong. I love oh, my chicken sandwich. I, I just I don't want to pay ten bucks for a number one uh, value meal. They, <laughs> I know that they, you know, they're, they're smart people. So this has been analyzed every which way from Sunday. They are betting on their culture to be a strategic asset for recruiting drivers. Well, now see that is the opposite side of the coin, right? I was just simply saying that. The cost of employees would be extremely high, but if there's an issue with drivers, as you noted that there is, and we've heard this from others, that perhaps turning them into a Chick-fil-A employee, perhaps that will give them that recruiting edge and they have a, maybe, maybe that becomes a, 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 now a bigger issue for McDonald's and now a bigger issue for Starbucks, right? Because all the good drivers are quitting. They're going to work for Chick-fil-A. Wouldn't that be an interesting turn? It would be. Now, I will tell you, most drivers, when they leave, they leave driving. Or, or if they, you know, they go do something local. Construction, for example, when construction is hot, that's one area where drivers tend to end up. They've just had it and they're getting out. Well, I mean, they're still driving, but instead of driving for Cisco or some other LTL type of situation, they just go work for Chick-fil-A because they like, they like the benefits, they like the culture. Correct. And, and this will be watched. You know, you hit it on the head. McDonald's and everyone else will be looking at this and asking the question, do we need to do this? And again, it, it's something that has to be really, really understood before you pull the trigger. I mean, this really could be the trend. You know, you get these big companies that try something and everyone else follows suit. For for years, everyone – I mean, no one ever thought about outsourcing accounting ever. I mean, we've always heard about outsourcing other you know, functions of a, of a business, but people started outsourcing to India and other uh, areas, the AP, the AR, the transaction level of accounting. And once some of the big companies did it, it – a lot of other companies followed suit. So to your point, a lot of people are going to be watching, and this could become a huge trend, a very expensive trend. Or it may bomb. And I'm not saying that to, to – <laughs> Like to, I said, I hope it doesn't. I love I, my I'm not, I'm not it. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying it, the, the learning could be don't do it. What were we thinking? 
you know, seemed like a good idea at the time, right? Yeah, but, all the analysis uh, was was on our side, and then right. But I, they, they are very disciplined in their approach, and so I know that they're going to. If it's at all possible to make it work, I have every confidence that they will make it work. Well, I think a, a career in supply chain uh, is a great. It's a great idea for the years to come. What uh, what skills do you think are most needed today to be very successful as a? I mean, look, I know supply chain. There's lots of different functions within supply chain, so I'll just kind of throw this out, you know, kind of broadly at a thirty thousand foot view. But what are the 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 top skills you think that are necessary for someone to to be successful in this in this space? You need to be incredibly curious and a continuous learner. Beyond that, you need the people skills of, of working with teams, working with people inside your organization as well as people outside your organization. The See, I wouldn't that, have guessed that. That's that's interesting. Continuous learning and people skills. I was thinking maybe you were going to talk about, you know, operational or, you know, attention to detail or some some other kind of, uh, I don't know, those seem more like mental mindsets. They are. But let me, let me explain that a little bit for you. In the world of supply chain, as you know, as a wise man once said to me, that when he comes in the office each day, it's not a question of whether or not there's going to be a problem. It's how big the problem is and what's it going to take to fix it. <laughs> it's going to hit the fan today. Yes. Okay. And what's it going to take to clean up? And so you could talk about grace under fire or pressure, what have you, or, or mental resiliency and what have you, and all that is relevant. But at the end of the day, you can talk about all the technology and what have you. It's still a people business. When a store doesn't get their delivery for whatever reason or something's missing off the truck. It is a person who is either picking up the phone and calling somebody or texting or emailing or something to somebody else. And that's just a part of the day in, day out. And yes, you need to fix that problem and do the diagnostics to make sure it's not something that's going to occur again. And if changes need to be made, make them. And with all of this, yes, is there a better way of doing this? So, Which goes into your continuous learning and being curious and correct. saying, hey, we're, we're constantly having this problem. And with Chick, going back to Chick-fil-A, they had an issue with service levels at stores. And they chose to go into the distribution business. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch. So you said uh, Cartersville is the first location they're building this uh, center. And you said there was a second one they're building? Louisville. Yeah. Cartersville is open. It's it's done a soft opening, so it's not fully servicing the area, but it is in business. Well, I'm going to have to keep an eye on that and start doing some research. I can tell you uh, Chick-fil-A is a very difficult company to work for to get through the hiring process. They are a very uh, particular company when it comes to hiring. Yes, they are. And, and people so get I won't get into the details here, but yeah, it's, um, it's unlike any other company from what, from my own experiences. 
Well, my youngest starts on Tuesday at our local Chick-fil-A. Oh, at the survey, at the store level. So my daughter worked there for about two years. And for the longest time, everything was my pleasure, my pleasure. (laughs) She would say that at home and then she'd catch herself. Uh, They do a great job, you know, with the, with, with the kids, I think. Yes, it's it's the service more so than the food that makes Chick-fil-A what it is. That is right. A lot can be said or fixed with a with with a smile. Well, I tell you, I've learned a lot today about uh about the supply chain. I learned a little bit about Olympics. <laughs> how to go about it sounds like, you know, being a volunteer is a great way to start if you want to try to get into that uh, you know, to get into that process and uh, you know, kind of diving in here to the complexity of insourcing or outsourcing and how do we manage uh, a process as, as complex as food. But like you say, it starts with that very first store, right? And do we have a great value proposition? Do we have all the kinks worked out? And then you can kind of gradually expand. Very true. Uh, needless to say, it's been a tough time for the restaurant industry uh, these last couple of months. And uh, it's going to be a prolonged recovery to get the restaurant industry back in a healthy shape. Yeah. Go out and eat, you know? Yes. That's how it starts, right? Just go out and eat. I was stunned to read the other day that there is upwards of a billion dollars of beer. That's going to go out of code. I had another episode about this. Uh, we're have yeah, there's problems, not just in, in beer, but it's been, it's in meat, it's in milk. For different reasons, but yeah, it's from the beer level, right? It's just not being consumed. What a shame. What a shame. <laughs> in, in Ireland, we, right. you can, everyone can just do their part right now. It would be a civic duty, yes. I mean, literally, come on. It, it, it puts new meaning to uh, happy hour. Paternities are in mourning as we speak. <laughs> I'm not a big drinker, but I do, I, I, I do love the taste of a good beer every now and then. So there you go, folks. If you, if you want to help your community, you've heard it here. Go drink a beer as long as you're over 21. Yes, let's That's our public, public yes. service. Drink responsibly. <laughs> uh, listen, Vince, this has been great. I really uh, – I think you've shed a lot of light in some different areas. And, again, back in the face group, I'm going to put a link uh, to you and to some of the volunteer work that you've done so other people can find out more about you and what you've done and all that you can offer, uh, not just as a, uh, a director of supply chain, but also as a consultant and anything that someone might need, they can reach out to you for uh, additional advice. Well, thank you, Tony. So glad that we got a chance to follow up. It's been a while. We'll have to do something again soon. Absolutely. I appreciate you coming on Career Daily, and we will see you at the next volunteer event. Fair enough. Looking forward to it. Don't forget, head over to LinkedIn and follow me, and then go to Facebook and join the exclusive Career Daily Facebook group. That's where I'll have links to the show notes and all the people and companies that we've discussed today.